I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Tote Steneby, the sommelier in Sweden's Portal restaurant in Stockholm. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Very nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So you had an interesting background as a child actor in theater. Yeah, both theater and films. In 95, I did my first real acting job in films. They came to school to film auditions for television commercial. Uh, and I got a part in that. And the same audition tapes circulated for a few different films. So without doing any more uh, auditions, I got picked up for a couple of different films in the mid-90s, so 96, 97. I did a few films about teen private detective kind of thing, which was, I mean, super fun. And also, I think, was a big part of how I kind of grew up and was being raised in the early teens. My parents were separated, and... Working with films, so there was like six of us in my age, and everyone else is an adult, you know, doing this as a serious job. It got me, I wouldn't say connected, but, you know, raised by a large group of adults early on. But it also feels like with both theater and food, it was an opportunity for you to have a strong relationship with your dad. It was a way of being closer with your dad. Yeah. So the relationship with my dad has been really like a back and forth or more like a roller coaster kind of thing. So around around the same time as I started acting, like 91, maybe 92, uh, when my parents got divorced, he bought an ice cream machine. He kind of figured like he wanted to bond with his kids. So me and my, my younger brother, who's two years younger than I am. And he was very interested in food and, you know, he was still an actor, but he took like weekends and nights off and work in these fancy restaurants just for fun in Stockholm. So he figured like, I want to bond with my kids, so how can I get them into the kitchen? And he was always cooking for us. And how can I get them interested? He bought an ice cream machine. So like, you know, very smart move. So we were doing ice cream like every, I think we were there like every other weekend we were doing ice, different ice creams with him, looking through like books, you know, what kind of ice creams can we do? Obviously, you can do any ice cream. I remember one time we were at this ice cream shop and they had popcorn ice cream. 
uh, when I was young. So that was fun. We tasted the popcorn ice cream, like, you know, trying to figure out how can we make the popcorn ice cream at home. And, you know, you you kind of go from doing ice cream. I remember we had dinner once in this restaurant where he worked. I had foie gras for the first time. I was like, whoa. I remember having wild boar, like real, really good mango. So it opened up my eyes early too for gastronomy and cooking and your my own palate too, I think. And he actually got you an internship at a pretty fancy restaurant at the time. Yeah, in Sweden, when you were at a certain age, maybe 13, 14, there's a mandatory internship that you do through school. So you can basically by yourself go wherever you like. If you want the school to help out, they have lots of places you can go. So I said, I want to be in this kitchen. And he said, great. I already done several films and done that. So I, th- I think that he thought that I would do something more in the business of film or theater. So I said, I want to be in this kitchen. He was like, whoa. For, okay, like you're 13 years old, you want to do service in the best restaurant in Sweden? Cool, I'll ask. So they said, yeah, of course. So I was there. I think the first stint was like two weeks. It was a tough atmosphere there. But since my dad was kind of carte blanche, celebrity, coming in, doing the cheese trolley one night, you know, just having fun, I think they treated me a little bit better than maybe some other 13-year-old interns, if they've ever had any. They, I remember this thing where they didn't cook the lobsters live. They cooked them whole, but not live. So they gave me this big chef's knife, which was like the size of my forearm, basically. And a cutting board and like 50 lobsters. They're like, you need to, this is your chance. You know, you need to kill alive lobsters. You need to split the head. You know, that's what I did when I was 13, interning, splitting lobster heads. How did you feel about guts? You know, it was tough in the beginning, I think, because you're killing someone. But I guess I kind of mustered up and at least tried to, tried to be macho, I don't know. But there's an artisanal feeling about doing something with your hands like that. Instead of buying, of course, I didn't know the difference between a live and a lobster that's frozen in a tube, but you get respect for the produce when, when you do something like that. It's probably a really good lesson, actually. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm killing you. But, you know, I, I want you to know that I'm going to, you know, you try to communicate. Show them that, you know, you have a little bit of heart. It sounds like your dad was a little bit of a big personality, was he? Yeah, he, he, I don't think he's one of those larger-than-life figures, but he's very social, he's very kind, warm, outgoing, you know, which is something that as a, as a son or, you know, a, a young boy, you know, really look up to. But also, growing up, we did have our problems, right? I guess I maybe I'm better now, but I used to be pretty outspoken. I could be. So I kind of called him out on stuff that, you know, maybe I thought that he did wrong or maybe said wrong. And, you know, when I started to get interested in wine too, he's been working with gastronomy like 10, 15 years. And I thought when I started with wine that he knew about wine so sometimes we were we would drink something we would talk about a wine pairing maybe i was like 
what you're saying doesn't make sense and it's wrong, by the way. Um, and maybe I got a little bit frustrated by the fact that I realized that he didn't, you know, he's, he's a great cook, but that he didn't was as good with wines as I thought he would be. But this is a while ago and I grew up too, so. I can relate to a lot of what you're saying because I think for me personally, disappointment with my dad was like one of the key features of my entire life that's played out like in numerous relationships that aren't that relationship <laughs> like a lot. And now that I'm a parent, it's uh, something I think about a lot every day. You know, as I said, uh, growing up, I worked a lot with other adults. So I had one dad at home, but then through a number of years, I had several father figures who taught me other things. And also taught me acting, which is, you know, something that I, I guess, initially picked up from dad, but, you know, gave me angles and perspective, you know, on what we're doing from other, like, father figures throughout my life. So, which also, you know, made our relationship um, maybe a little bit more tense. Oh, I see. Because he was already fighting for your attention. and Yeah, a little bit. And also, like, you know... You're you're telling me one thing, but I got these other people, same age as you, who are telling me, you know, other stuff or similar but different or treat me different. Even if you're you know you're a kid and you come to a film set, I was the actor. So even though I'm a kid, they treated me with respect and they ask you at least maybe a couple of years into my career, how do you want to do this? How do you see this? And you discuss different lines or different scenes it's not that kind of respect i got when i was home more like i got home and it was like it's it's 10 p.m now you need to go to bed because you're working tomorrow it's like I, no one talks to me like that on set you know and you're my dad maybe you should you know kind of treat me with a little bit of respect too you know i guess it, it builds an ego that maybe isn't really healthy too i guess uh and i know coming into school because i studied acting too for six years in like junior high and high school from mid-90s basically up to 2002 when i graduated and i know that coming into you know that class or those two classes that was um i probably didn't bring the best attitude i think that's the um stereotype of the child actor right yeah probably and i know i remember so I did three years, and then coming into junior high with a completely new class, different school. And after the first year, my my theater teacher told me, well, a year ago you came here with much more experience and probably more talent than anyone else in this class, but nothing happened to you over the last year. You didn't contribute and you didn't evolve. Because I think I was asking her, like, what, you know, you're not giving me the top grade, right? You know, I deserve an A. And probably looked at some of my classmates, like, you don't know what you're doing, you know. Um, and she called me out on it, which was a great thing. Like, what you're doing is that you come in and, and you're better than everyone else, but you can't, you can't act on being better than everyone else. You need to try to get everyone else up to your level instead. Instead of just telling people they're doing wrong, you should try to make people feel comfortable or your classmates feel comfortable 
learn from the experiences that you have. That's a key restaurant lesson as well, right? Because a lot of times the sommelier is at a different level than the busboy, or you got to work with them to bring them up, not the other way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like a recurring theme. Life is kind of condensed into very few moments, really. And it took me maybe, I don't know, 10 years from this episode with my drama teacher to understand actually what she really meant. Because I was in a similar situation later in my sommelier career where I realized, hmm, I know the situation. Last time I was in this situation, someone said I didn't contribute and that I you know, was a little bit obnoxious and maybe, you know, diva or whatever. You know, this, this time I can do it. Do it right, maybe. That's the best part of life, right? You get do-overs on stuff like that. You stop in a certain situation and you realize, I know, I know, I know this. I know how to Maybe not why, but for some reason I think I've figured this out now. I know how I should be. Personally, I found restaurants key for that because there's so many of the interactions were repetitive things. Like what kind of water would you like and welcome to the restaurant and here's the specials. And yeah. You would do the same thing over and over and over again. And then when something would happen, you would know the next time if that happens, what to say. You know, it's that kind of salt or, you know, someone has a concern. And I found restaurants great like that. Yeah. And I think, so what you were saying about that, you know, experience goes all the way down to the busboy. There's this, this nice episode that I like from Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential, where he goes to a kitchen somewhere in a fancy restaurant, he starts to work, and he gets shocked when he sees, like, the busboy is decanting, you know, the sentiment out of leftovers from a wine bowl somewhere, doing dishes and then decanting wine, tasting it, and go, like, discussing it. I've taken that picture with me working as a sommelier. And I think finally now at Portal, actually, we have a program which is very kind of full circle. So I bring down wine to the kitchen all the time and the dishwasher too, like, you know. Does breakage go up as a result? Yeah, maybe. It gets a little rowdy by the end of service in the kitchen. No, I think it's very important. Like, you know, when it also helps us front of house. So when they cook something, you can tell them like, Okay, great course, great dish, but maybe we could adjust it like this. And you bring them some wine and taste the wine and you have a discussion about it, a conversation. So I try to bring, every time we open something exciting, I bring it down and I try to, even though it's middle of service and, you know, it's difficult for them to, you know, shift their focus from cooking to tasting wine, I try to force them. When we just opened, we opened a bottle of 28 Petrus. And you bring down a glass of 28 Petrus to them and go like, you, you need to taste this. Like, what is it? It's Bordeaux, it's Pomerol, it's Merlot. It's from 1928. No, and even though it might be difficult for them to understand the wine or the value of the bottle or whatever, I think it's, it's an important part to keep everyone on the inside. What's interesting about you is that the dates of your career kind of match up with the interest in wine as a country from Sweden. Like the renaissance of interest in wine as a subject really coincides with your sommelier career, date-wise. So between acting and when I started as sommelier, I did 
a lot of different things. I worked hardcore with fish for a couple of years. Um, I got interested in beer and more interested in music, so I picked up my guitar playing again, uh, jazz guitar mostly. Realized that maybe guitar wasn't really my thing. I picked it up too late in life, and I like to do things all the way. And I was never going to be a great guitarist. So I started DJ, which I was fairly good at, but there's no money in DJing. There's plenty of free beer in DJing, but there, there's no money. So I couldn't make a living out of that. I was in a, in a low, basically, in 2005 and six, And realizing I was reading all about wine. And, you know, I remember this is just when the Wine Library TV show got on, you know, with Gary Vaynerchuk. And so in the apartment that I was renting at the time, the internet connection was so slow. So I would, before I went to work, I put on download like four episodes of Wine Library TV. And then I went to work. And when I came back, at least like three of them were done downloading. Staying up all night, you know, watching them, it's like, oh, this the Symphondel episode or whoever was on the show and we're talking about Russian River Valley. You know, so Googling and looking up all those things. So I decided like, I got to do something. I can't do the guitar thing. I suck. The DJ thing isn't really doing anything for me. Maybe I should try to pick up, you know, the wine thing. But it's hard as a consumer, right? Not as a sommelier, but as a consumer, you're just going through the monopoly. Yeah. In Sweden. I mean, I, so I was working in restaurants, so I had a little bit more access. But it takes, it also takes a little bit of knowledge and experience to kind of fully exploit the market in Sweden. So if you work in a restaurant, you don't really, you know, as young as I was, you don't really know how to taste all these wines. So I, I bought stuff, you know, going very naively, you know, buy stuff off the shelves in the Monopoly. I remember buying Mondavi Fumi Blanche. It's one of those bowls that I bought and I was drinking and like thinking of and um, some Valpolicella and you know, stuff. So I took a decision or I felt like I had, I had to take a decision. I got to do something with my life because I was miserable. And I thought maybe this is... Um, Maybe this is the way out of misery for me because I'm, you know, enjoying wine so much. I identify with a lot of that. Like, uh, it was something that provided me a new vantage point on enjoyment, I think. Wine. I was having uh, personal problems as a, as a younger guy and uh, wine was a, a whole world. And it was also a lifestyle that I could get into. Whereas I think it, other things provided a world, but not also a lifestyle. So I thought wine was kind of all-encompassing and at the time when i had all free time and very little ability to manage it well that was very appealing yeah and i think what i like about wine so i didn't realize that it's an infinite abyss of knowledge that you know it's unconceivable uh that made sense to me much later uh which turned me even more onto wine i think but it's that everyone has their own opinion on this it's Everyone has their own opinion about what's in the glass, which is a great thing about wine. So you and I, we can share a bottle of wine and we can just think, we taste the same thing. We will have two different opinions and ideas behind it, which is great, I think. A bottle of wine can lead to infinite discussions about things. And I realized this early on that 
tasting wines that maybe were on the wine library TV show. Because when I started with wine, I didn't have anyone to, to talk to about it. So I was listening to Gary V on the show, trying to find some of the wines that he was talking about and tasting them. It was like, yeah, I see what you mean. But I also think, you know, maybe maybe this wine just isn't for me. You like it, but I think it's a little bit over the top or too lean or whatever. I guess it takes you a little while to find to figure out that you're allowed to have a different opinion than someone else. In the end, that's what makes wine so interesting. I think Sweden's really interesting along those lines because people are really open and want to try a lot of different things, and the wine culture is new, whereas before people had really been into distillates. And so that's similar to America, right? People are open. They don't have a lot of prejudices about where things come from. They want to try stuff, and the wine culture is new. But we had a big phase of very powerful critics, and I feel like Sweden kind of skipped over that. And so it is a little different in terms of, you know, I don't know that every American sommelier would be like, the cool thing about wine is that everyone can have their own opinion. It's actually not something you encounter a lot. You encounter people who have been in a business a long time who've come to the view that they can have their own opinion and they're kind of rebellious against authority as a result of that it took so long to get there. But usually I think people look more to agree with each other and feel that's a certain level of acceptance about wine, I find, in wine. But I I think our critical history has been a little different. Obviously, Parker, I'm sure the books were out there for people to find and stuff like that. But I think here was more of an epicenter of that effect. So I think so too, even though, you know, Parker points are thrown around in Sweden. But more, I mean, obviously you want to taste 100-point Parker wine, but not necessarily because you think it's going to be great, but more to get a reference point on what a 100-point Parker wine is. In Sweden, I think it's true what you're saying, that it's a little bit about acceptance and maybe not sticking out too much. The Swedish wine market, even though it's growing, it's still kind of small in terms of what's available. So you tend to see a lot of the same things on different wine lists you know, around town. And hopefully people pick those wines because they taste them and they like them, not because they think some other sommelier is going to come by and see it's on the list and like the sommelier. And I think the Swedish sommelier scene is in a very good state. It's inspired and ambitious, and it's getting more and more like that. I think maybe five, six years ago, when me and Jonas, who was on the show a couple of years ago, and some other sommeliers in Sweden, we started a a small organization with the sole goal of inspiring younger sommeliers or older for that matter too but you know getting the sommelier crowd more back together networking more but also maybe more interested in our profession i think growing up through a profession you need to take care of what you leave behind that was a big feature of that interview with jonas sandberg that you mentioned founding that school and how it was it was time for the swedish sommelier community to have that happen I won the Swedish Sommelier Championship, I think it was in 2011. And there was me and three other people competing. So winning a competition 
that has an open entry. So there could be 200 people competing and there's only four, you know, it's not only is it not as prestigious to win a competition with only four people, but also it's like, we, you know, we were scratching our heads, like, you know, what did we maybe, but probably the generation preceding us do wrong to not attract more, more sommeliers. And I mean, I'm part of a generation, uh, I think a very good generation in, in terms of, Swedish sommelier history and your ages so yeah so I'm 34 in a couple of months so I, I'd say between maybe who the sommeliers are now maybe between 30 and 40 something like that but we kind of started in the same in the same time and most of us have really engaged in trying to build confidence for the next generation I think it's important if you're successful to help other people be successful too. But it sounds also like you wanted some people to talk to. Yeah, of course. And people to hire. Right, right. But it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there was a ton of interest in food and wine that was happening at the same time in Sweden. Yeah, so, yeah. So Sweden has, over the last 10, 15 years, started to be very interested in cooking. There's 24-7 cooking shows on television. There's new cookbooks out every day, basically. And cooking has become really like a folk sport. Everyone is cooking and interested. And that leads to people going out to restaurants more. And the Swedish economy is very strong. Stockholm is you know, a growing city with lots of money. So people go out and eat. And when you go out and eat, you drink some wine. And so the interest in wine has also grown tremendously as an effect of the fact that people eat more, eat out more, are more interested in what they're eating and cooking themselves. And there's a lot of tech money around in Stockholm. Yeah. Stockholm has changed completely, I think, over the last 10, 15 years. It was a sleepy little town before. It's, it's bursting now with, well, money and, I think, energy. It's not only positive, I think. It's getting colder. It's... It, it's turning into a business business town. But that's a good recipe if there's money around and people are really interested in food, also for wine, because it turns out, because of how wine is sold in Sweden through the Monopoly, that restaurants are a big access point for a lot of different wines than people can find otherwise as regular consumers. Yeah, I mean, definitely. When we realized as sommeliers that people take more interest in what we're actually serving and take more interest in how the wine list looks and how it's priced. It's, it was like a wake-up call, I think. Like We need to find other stuff that's not on the importer's list, which the Monopoly buys from as well, and that everyone else you know, buys. So pretty early on in my similar career, I tried to find stuff abroad and source the, you know, wines in England and Denmark and Germany and France and Italy to build a more interesting wine program. Also, it, I think it has changed pricing a little bit. So when you know that people are coming in every night asking for nice wines, it's easier to be a little cheaper, have a lower markup. I think in general, the wine lists went from, I wouldn't say more or less the same, but, but kind of chiseled, molded in the same way to a much broader diversity today and i started my own import company 
and there are several other sommeliers who started their import companies. Uh, it used to be very dominant of big companies. A few people from these big companies left and started their smaller companies. So there's much more business to choose from or lists of wine to choose from today. Because one of the key times for the rise of the sommelier in America was the 90s. And what was going on in the 90s is that wines that consumers wanted were allocated only to restaurants and you couldn't purchase them at retail. So you either had in the restaurant's good graces that they would sell you one of their three bottles of Harlan or you had to be on the mailing list for Harlan. Otherwise, you probably weren't going to buy it unless you were in certain states where auction was around. And people were very excited to try these wines. And so because the access point at retail was more limited, restaurants really took off. And that's when you saw the the rise of the large seller restaurant in the United States. And that's somewhat changed now because the allocation model isn't like that anymore. But in Sweden, you have something similar by the way that wine is sold in that retail is really hamstrung. In fact, monopoly employees can't even really make recommendations to people about what they should drink as customers. They're prohibited from doing that, which is... In the States, the first thing that people will tell you to do is go to a, a retailer that you trust, take their recommendation, learn about wine. I feel like restaurants are really driving a lot of the change in Sweden because that's who can. And at the same time, what you just said is true, that people are starting up small portfolios, import portfolios, as they are sommeliers. So if you think of like someone else who's been on the show, Ruben Sanz Romero, that's exactly what he's doing. And it's a model somewhat similar to what you see in Canada sometimes, where the sommelier is also a small portfolio importer. Yeah, and I there's very few importers in Sweden who actually give allocation to private customers. So it's true what you're saying that, I mean, if there's a like a small launch, say Ramonet or Raveno or some Burgundy, like 24 bowls to be sold, at the Monopoly, you would have to sit in front of your computer and at 10 a.m. on the 2nd, the wines are open for ordering. And probably, you know, a second later or half a second later, it'll be sold out. You can't be a good customer. You can't be a loyal customer. It doesn't matter. If you want to buy Kosturi as a private consumer in Sweden, you sit there and you push the button as many times as you can, the seconds leading up to 10 a.m., and maybe you're lucky and you get a bottle of wine. So I think, yeah, what you're saying is true that, you know, we see more customers coming to a restaurant to find the wines that they can't obtain otherwise. Which also has a flip side, I think, because there's so many wines being consumed young. You know, the mentality of either me now, but the wine is too young and not enjoyable, maybe not even worth the price, or someone else is going to drink this. Is there an auction market in Sweden? Yeah, there is an auction market held through the Monopoly. It's an interesting auction market. It's not the most educated auction market. So sometimes you pay more at auction than you would if you would spend 10 minutes searching online. I guess people find it interesting to, or exciting to buy at auction and maybe forget that maybe a lot of these wines are available through an, like an online retailer in Europe somewhere or in the States. Walk me through the sommelier career a little bit because you've worked at a number of different venues. So I guess what I would ask you is what have been some of the learning takeaways from different kinds of restaurants that you've worked in? Yeah. So the first 
real job I had as a sommelier was at the wine bar. We had, I guess, between 60, 70, 80 wines by the glass on any given night, changing every every time. So even though it's a small, you know, it's a small space, but it's a great start to get going as a sommelier, I think. You taste a number of different wines, and you also get to follow bottles through day one and two and three. And you're very close to the customer in a space like that. The difficulties I found is that that small space becomes a little bit confined eventually. So this job opportunity came up to be the head sommelier for this new restaurant, very ambitious. In downtown Stockholm, the chef who was runner-up in the Bukus door. Also, he had a sommelier education too, and you know, see, he's a very nice guy, and we got along well. So I was like, yeah, this is an ambitious restaurant project, so they want me as the head sommelier, so that's cool, I'm going to do this. And we uh, kind of negotiated with the people, you know, the investors, and like, we need a budget for a wine cellar. They gave me a budget. Um, my story, at least, the way I see it, is that they gave me a budget. And I bought a lot of wine and, you know, tried to do all of it. But the whole project kind of collapsed even before it began. So it was two different dining rooms, a casual one and a fine dining, two different kitchens, though just next to each other. So what happens is a couple of weeks before we open, one of the head chefs just decides to leave. Three days into like real preparation and like, you know, soft service, soft opening, the other head chef leaves. Just classic walkouts, you know, apron on the floor, I'm out. The restaurant manager got fired the same day we opened. And nothing in construction was done. It was a complete disaster. So I did that for nine months. And I think, you know, it was a struggle. Uh, I think, you know, working 350, 400 hours a month during winter, in Sweden, I should add, you know, which is a very dark period. Um, I just got tired of it, and I, I saw that we were changing from creating something to just kind of keep up appearances. But I took something away from that is that I was young as a sommelier and had probably a young mind a little bit, probably full myself a little bit, and really wanted to kind of show my peers in the industry, you know, what I could do in terms of building a wine program. So I did a lot of exciting things there. I, I felt, I still feel, but I really felt that I was working in a progressive way, doing something that wasn't really done before in Stockholm. But we couldn't get the right audience there to appreciate the wines. And obviously, when everyone involved reviewed all the invoices, they were like, who gave you a clearance to buy all these wines? We said, well, do you remember two months ago we had this conversation about budget? They were like, no. That manager's gone now. Yeah, because everything else in the restaurant costed too much money anyway. So the wine cellar became a big deal, big affair, and I left. I kind of value the catastrophic failures. I don't know about you, but like not having been in the military, there's no chaos like restaurant chaos when everything fucking falls apart like that. And it's uh, interesting times, like especially in hindsight. Like sometimes I just giggle and stuff about the stuff. When things are mismanaged horrifically, and then the results of that, because people often think of restaurants as like simple work, but it can go so terribly, terribly wrong if things aren't managed well, that you can have just ludicrous experiences. 
when I left school in 2002, uh, my dad always had this ambition of having his own restaurants. So we created a small little pop-up restaurant thing in his house. You know, this is coming back to, you know, having crazy times in restaurants. Um, we decided to do like two seatings in one night, 25 guests each, very kind of ambitious food, way over our knowledge or expertise. It was him, it was me, my brother, and some friends that I invited from school, basically, to do with cooking and you know, my younger sister, she was like 11 when we started taking care of the dining room. And everything there, I mean, was completely lunacy and crazy the first, I don't know, five, six times we did it. There's this episode that we joke about now where my dad is holding a, a knife and he's very, you know, he's stressed out. There's like a lamb brisket that hasn't cooked through. You know, we're one hour late. There's 25 people coming in 45 minutes and we haven't served the main course yet. Crazy. Getting very worked up. And, I, you know, he's a, he's a super nice guy who never hurt anyone. But he's holding this knife and he's looking for his glasses and kind of waving his arms around, trying to find his glasses somewhere in the kitchen. And so my best friend from school, his girlfriend was working in the dining room. And she comes in and he turns around with a knife and almost cuts her in, like, right over the face. He doesn't, you know, it's just close. So she gets all scared and he's screaming like, oh. So she just goes out and, you know, starts crying, of course. Uh, and it turns out the glasses are on his forehead, of course. So I guess maybe through the all of this that, you know, that we did at home, which was, you know, very friendly and familiar, but also had these crazy episodes, um, I guess kind of prepared me for what we did at, the restaurant was called Jonas, the restaurant that just, you know, that kind of fell apart. Uh, we had another crazy episode there where the, the, so the second head chef for the fine dining kitchen, this is when we were just in like survival mode. So we had someone coming in who was allergic to seafood and mushrooms, something like that. And the first starter was, we had a vegetarian alternative, which was based on mushrooms. And the one on the menu was based on seafood. So Jonas, who was the head chef, was asking like, okay, so what do you got planned for? I was asking, what do, you, what do you got planned for the first course for this for this lady who, who can't eat the two options we have? And the guy was running the kitchen. He was like, oh, I got to think of something. And they had no produce. They had nothing in the kitchen to do anything else that was on the menu because they didn't have time to prepare it. And I'm kind of pushing a little bit. And Jonas, the you know the owner and chef, he's pushing. So the guy just leaves. Takes off his apron, leaves, he, he takes a broom and kind of hits a door with it, creates this large hole, and then just leaves. So Jonas is like, okay, well, I guess I'm cooking. So there are, as you're saying, within all this, you know, crazy things going on, looking back at it, it's kind of funny. I mean, there is that real aspect of one reality that's happening behind the kitchen doors and the other that's happening in front of them very often. I mean, that's a basic, right? But it's interesting approaching that from a theater background. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. You know, so I left after nine months and I felt pretty worn out and kind of broken. You know, I had an idea of creating something and it didn't work out and I was, you know, felt kind of sad about it. So I took like a three-month hiatus from work, basically trying to figure out what I was going to do if I was going to continue as a sommelier or do something else. We were starting the sommelier guild and that was fun, but I needed to work somewhere. 
so I took over as a head sommelier for this. When I took over, it was only two restaurants in the old town of Stockholm that has like an old wine cellar. Everything in that area of Stockholm is old. Nice old wine cellar, two restaurants with different themes, and I got hired to do basically open a wine bar, which took a little time, but eventually became the Burgundy wine bar. So I was all about Burgundy back then. Was that typical, like in Sweden at the time? No, but it was like we felt we wanted to do something just different. Also, it's a, it was a very small space. We had 12 seats. So we felt, you know, making something that's very niche would work on 12 seats. So we opened the Burgundy Bar with more or less only Burgundy. So once again, I did the same job of kind of sourcing old wines from all around the world. But Where does that take you? In Sweden, like, where does it take you to source old wines? Does it mean you're meeting some shady dude in a back alley with a van? or what? I mean, what is the reality? The shady dude is a nice guy who lives on the western side of Sweden. He's a good friend of mine. And I, you know, even before we opened the Burgundy Bar, I helped him out a lot buying and, uh, and I bought tons of wine from him. But so he kind of helped me to, um, you know, sourcing wines all around Europe that he imported and I could buy from him, basically. And I was also consulting, I guess you could say a little bit for my friend's Burgundy import company. So they were able to get me some stuff too from Burgundy and, you know, around. Still a lot of focus on negotiants in Burgundy or what are people like in Sweden? The thing that I took with me from the Burgundy bar, which I knew would happen but I didn't realize it'll be maybe as you know as much as we actually did, is that, so we had every type of consumer coming in, asking for a glass of Amarone, which is super popular in Sweden, or a glass of Zinfandel or whatever, you know, sweet fruits, red wine you could think of. You go like, so I don't have that, but I have a Fisa that you might like. And they go like, you know, what's Fisa? Well, it's, you know, it's Burgundy, it's Pinot Noir, you know, taste it, you like it. But I could see it being difficult to introduce people to what I think of as sometimes lighter, brisker red Burgundies. Because when I look at the consumption charts for Sweden, there's this huge home market for like bag and box Recioto, really big red wines. That's a big thing. So I could imagine that if people are used to that on the home life and then they come in to a restaurant and you're like, so this is not a dried grape wine. And it's a burgundy from a commune where the wines are a little lighter. I mean, that, that might take some translation. Yeah, definitely. But I actually found that it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. And also we worked with very low margins. So, I mean, if you pour a 99 village by the glass, the sweetness that kind of comes from maturity and a vintage like 99, which is, you know, round and just lovely, people go like, oh, you know, okay, it's a little bit more than I thought I would spend on a glass of wine, but this was enjoyable. Maybe they didn't think it was delicious, but at least, you know, something else that they could enjoy as a glass of wine. And I don't think that good wines need to be sold with a story, but it certainly helps at some points. So if you tell them it's all these different climates and we had the maps of Cotebon and Cotonui on the wall that you could tell them it's from this can you see this is a slope you know here's a little valley that kind of funnels cold air so this is a warm year and you know blah 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 you know old vines and this is the winemaker it intrigues people and what we did there I think 
is that we actually told the story about the Burgundy region. And, you know, always have a broad spectrum of different styles of Burgundy available too. And what ended up happening is you developed a Burgundy import portfolio of your own, which you could see a segue there about telling stories for the place and having a connection with the wines that you knew. And that naturally leads into import, I think. You know, before we started the Burgundy Bar, this actually goes back to the other wine bar that I worked with early in my career, where this guy came in who's now a good friend, and he said, I'm starting an import company, focus on Burgundy. I was, I've been there a couple of times. You know, it's great. And, you know, this might sound crazy to the listeners in the States, but this is in 2008 or nine, maybe. And a lot of the great names were not imported to Sweden. So he looked through the book Great Domains of Burgundy and basically looked through what was available in Sweden. He was like, okay, Dushak is not available. Lafarge is not available. Thibault de Gibler is not available. Fontaine-Gagnard and so on and so on. So he just went down there, basically knocking on the door. You want to sell wine to Sweden? Yeah, I don't think we sell wine to Sweden, of course. Yeah, and he got an allocation. So he asked me at the, at the Burgundy Bar, like, is there any domains that, you you know, or any wines that you want to serve here or you think I should import? So that was kind of the my key uh, or my entry to Burgundy seriously. I remember the first time I was in Burgundy was with him. And, you know, I got immediately turned on to the difficulties of Burgundy, the intricate system of different climates and terroirs and everything. And from then on, I traveled to Burgundy as much as I could. And when you're there enough, you meet the same people over and over again. To me, wine is all about people. So, as I said before, you know, uh, life comes down to very few defining moments, basically. So one of them is I'm with Rajat Parr, who I knew from a couple of years. This is probably in 2012. I'm with Rajat Par in Bouillon in Becker Wasserman's house. So he emailed me saying, because we were on this Burgundy trip, and he said, like, I'm going to cook an Indian dinner in Becker Wasserman's house. That's awesome, actually. Yeah, and being, you know, very, very interested in Burgundy, of course, I knew of Becky Wasserman and her importance to Burgundy and her legacy. So I was like, you know, this is like a dream come true. How cool is this? So that's when I met Becky the first time. We had a great evening, you know, drinking wine and listening to Paul Wasserman and Becky and, you know, talking about wine and history. So um, she asked me, I think in an email or maybe the second time I met her in Burgundy, you know, we're, we're looking at, we got all these new producers in our portfolio. Uh, I don't think they're imported to Sweden. Could you maybe help help us? you help us find importers or you know grow the market for these wines in Sweden? I said, yeah, I'll help you out. And I did, I was kind of looking through different importers, thinking of different ways to do it. In the end, I decided uh, I'd do it myself. Probably a pretty good decision. In hindsight, yeah, definitely. So I started my own import company and I guess Becky thought that was the best idea too. Because, you know, we know each other. So that it's been growing since. It's only a two and a half year old business now, but I enjoy it very much. 
It's odd for me, though, to not think that the Burgundy market would have been more built out than that already in Sweden because, you know, when you go to Burgundy, there's a lot of Dutch people there. A lot of people in Norway really like classic Burgundies. So, you know, I think of Sweden as one of those countries, perhaps very wrongly. But, you know, it's a surprise to me that it's not already taken, that these properties aren't already represented by somebody here. So I think that every, if we're talking about wine, like every region, every grape variety country needs an ambassador of some sort. A producer or a group of producers, or maybe a sommelier or a critic that advocates the wines from there, to get people's attention. So when I started in 2007, no one really cared about Burgundy, Sweden, but just then there was a new import company coming from Norway. So the import company have played a great deal in the Norwegian palette of wine, I think. They were establishing themselves in Sweden and they were starting with, I don't know, 45 domains from Burgundy. So all of a sudden from nothing, we had all these great names available. And all of us sommeliers were, as I said before, turned on by the whole idea of, you know, Volney, Kairi, it's, you know, interesting and whole cluster fermentation, you know, what's, what's whole cluster and stuff like that. Um, and that kind of became something, what I would like to call the Burgundy boom, where everyone was drinking Burgundy every day, all the time. And this, my friend's company was started basically in the same time. So... You know, Burgundy is big in Norway because of this guy who had this company and started importing Burgundy into Norway, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, something like that. And he kind of did the same thing in Sweden. Not as successful, but yeah. Have you found that Sweden varies by north to south? Have you found that it's different to sell Burgundy in Gothenburg than it is in further north or... I can tell you it's different from Stockholm and everything else, actually, in Sweden, I'd say. For Burgundy specifically, Gothenburg, the second biggest town of Sweden, which is on the west coast, Burgundy has a scene there, and maybe Malmö too, in the southern part of Sweden, just across the border from Copenhagen. But apart from that, I don't think there's a, a scene, basically, a Burgundy scene. Wines in Sweden, as you said, are Basically, bag-in-box wines are 65-70% of sales at the Monopoly. There is a huge demand for wines made out of dried or semi-dried grapes. You know, a lot of bullshit wines. So people don't buy wine for it being a wine. It's a vessel for alcohol, I guess, and pleasure. But I can understand that, coming out of the heavy distillate thing, that people would gravitate towards high-alcohol wines first. Because if you look at the sales trends... Aquavigo's down quite a bit, but it was super high before, like in the 70s and 80s. And it's replaced with wine going up, but a lot of that's high alcohol wine. Yeah, and also there is the idea that it's sophisticated, I guess, to do something else, drinking aquavit and beer, which we've done hundreds of years in Sweden, maybe isn't considered that sophisticated. But drinking wine... Is doesn't matter which wine it is. I mean, the f- if you're bringing wine to a dinner in Sweden, the finest thing you can bring is a bottle of Amarone. Even if it's a 20 buck Amarone, it's still the finest thing that you could bring, I think. That was amazing to me to, to find that out because I went to a seminar about what sells in the Swedish market, sort of on a whim. I just happened to go 
And they told that, that the Amarone was so popular because here it's not. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, I get it. That's where it all goes. Because <laughs> obviously they still make it. Yeah, I mean, so there's plenty of good Amarones. But that's not what the majority of sales is in Sweden. Actually, the Amarone isn't the majority of sales. It's it's other stuff made out of dried grapes that they right. sell in Bagenbach. It's supposed Amarone-like. Amarone-like, but it can be from wherever. Right, Apulia or whatever, for yeah. 10 bucks or whatever, which is probably not made the right way. <laughs> no. So what's it like selling Burgundy to sommeliers? Because before you were selling Burgundy to people in restaurants, but now you're selling it to other restaurants. I believe very much in educating the the consumer, and I think that what I do might be a little bit different from other import companies, since I have a, you know, a, I wouldn't say strict, but it started out as being pure burgundy. And names that, or domains that maybe did their first vintage in appellations that you wouldn't maybe consider to be of high quality, like Fissins, Santenay, whatever. So I think it's important that you have people taste them, but also explain, like, this domain has been around forever, it was maybe not as good before, but now they've changed, you know, they've changed the farming and winemaking, much more serious now, you taste them, and they're like, you know, a third or fourth of the price of a Von Romanet, but the difference in quality isn't that big. And so what I like to do, what I'm hoping that I do with my company is to have people explore Burgundy more. So we were pouring Fourier Closan Shack 05 by the glass in the wine bar where I worked in 08, 09, at maybe 30 bucks a glass. And now it's, uh, I don't know, 250 wholesale maybe, or 200 bucks wholesale. So you can't, you cannot, as a sommelier, only source those kind of wines you need to if you want to serve burgundy if you want to work with burgundy find the gems in the other villages how much do you think the gray market finds sweden to be a source for wine that's consumed in the states for example how much of the rise in prices is actually attributable to foreigners drinking the wine somewhere else than in sweden the rise in prices is you know i guess universal and Burgundy, Bur- so Burgundy was underpriced compared to other wine regions. It's silly, I think, how you could buy great Premier Cruz and Grand Cruz for that money before. And it, it just, me being a sommelier, it hurts a little bit that I, did, that I didn't buy more. Oh, me too. Every day. I think about it every day. <laughs> and actually enjoyed it more. So I remember we, we bought a few cases of Malconsor 05 from Cathyard. And people would come in and like, you know, we sold it at 160 bucks. And people would drink that like every day. And, you know, that's a great, that's a great burgundy. I saw it today, like 400 bucks retail. But I was kind of like, ah, what are you, you know, are you drinking the Malconsor again? Like, come on, have some Brunello or something, you know, Barolo, whatever, something else. Now, if I could open... A great wine like that every every time I work, you know, I'd, I'd be happy. But it, it sounds like in this interview, a lot of it's a perspective that you've learned over time. I mean, that's a recurring theme 
that you've looked back at younger you and said like, oh, I don't know, now I'm a little bit more like this. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's not just the wine that matures in the bottle, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, I think it's important to kind of look back on what you did, learn from your mistakes, but also enjoy the naive side of you that you had when you were young. Right? You need to be able to laugh at yourself and all the stupid and silly you know, mistakes that you do going through life and see that I am who I am today because I did this and because I was in this situation, I learned something from it. I'm, I may not know what I learned, but it in some shape or form was important to who I am today. So, Which has worked out pretty well. It's not like you're nobody. Like, you know, you're sommelier or pretty prestigious place and you have an import portfolio of interesting wines and it's it's not like you're saying this from the perspective of the guy who's actually drinking the bag and box wine no <laughs> you, you know what i mean like oh i really screwed some things up i mean it feels like it it's basically worked out for you i think yeah i think so too and and i had a discussion with rajat par and sasha Mormon, a little bit similar to this conversation i'd say you know about educating consumers like because i have so much questions all the time so when I get an answer to the question, I just want to pass that answer along. And I said, you know, what I'm doing with the, with Burgundy, and so they got interested, I guess, in that approach I have to wine. Because you work with them also in the yeah. import portfolio today. We were in Oregon, or I was in Oregon uh, for the Oregon Pinot Camp a few years ago and had a bottle of red Burgundy with Rajat and Sashi. And we were talking about lots of different things. But the question came up from them. It's like, so is... Because I considered myself more as an ambassador of, of Burgundy than an actual importer. Or that was actually the idea with the company in the first place to to not maybe not sell as much Burgundy, but work more as a kind of ambassador, educator on Burgundy wines. Well, that's going to be helpful uh, when the 2016s hit, when there's no wine to sell. Yeah, that's tough. But... Um, so they said, well, maybe you could do something similar for Domaine de la Côte and Eveningland in Europe. You know, be someone who could educate the markets and, you know, make sure the wines are perceived in the way they should. That's how it started. So it kind of grew from that. And now I more or less take care of the European market for Sandy, Domaine de la Côte and Eveningland. So what's that like? I mean, what is the place of four those wines in different countries in Europe? What's the embrace of kind of European mindset California wine? What I try to do is to make consumers and people realize that California wine today is not what it used to be. This is something that I realized not long ago too. So I was in California in 2015 maybe, 2014-15, like some vacation road trip visiting all these wineries and that was a big eye-opener for me. You know, I tasted Domaine de la Côte and Sandy and, you know, some other great California wines before. And, you know, the classic style of California wine can be great too. Don't get me wrong. But the kind of new California style. And I just felt like this is very exciting. And the way that I've been taught about California wine and the winemakers that I met hasn't communicated I think what California actually is about. The differences in terroir, soil types, different climates, and you know, the effects of mountains and everything, ridges and so 
the world I consider to be my main thing with Domaine de la Côte and Sandy and Eveningland is to have people change their perception, maybe, of California wine through tasting what we're offering with an additional kind of explanation about, you know, the, what's, what's special about the Domaine de la Côte terroir, right? And why is that different from everything else in the Santa Rita Hills? What's different about the Seven Springs Vineyard? I'm not saying it's better, but it's different. And when you taste the wine, you could tell that it's different. It's up to you if you like it or not. I'm not going to push that on you, but you're going to taste the difference and you're going to wonder why. So I want to be able to tell you why. Why does it taste different? It's the same thing I do in Burgundy. I found that somewhat challenging because I work with Sicily and Apulia and Campania wines. And when you would go to someone, you know, a few years ago and say, like 10 years ago, and say, uh, well, I have this wine from Sicily. You should try it. It's very Burgundian. They wouldn't believe me because they were their idea of Sicily was the high alcohol, big red of Sicily. And that had been a dominant market force for so long that they were very skeptical about this Etna thing that I was offering them. And it was a challenge. And, you know, took some diplomacy and some goodwill and some, you know, real work to get it across. And I can imagine that you face some of the same difficulties in, with California and Oregon representing that in Europe, let alone any pricing problems that you may have with strong dollar or whatever. But, you know, convincing people that it's not what they, the Cabernet Napa cab model that they're thinking of, it's something else. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's very true. In some of the markets in Europe where, we, you know, we've introduced Dwayne de la Côte and Sandy, we get comments from the importer or maybe, you know, consumers in that market going, this doesn't taste like a California Chardonnay. You know, I ordered a California Chardonnay. This, you know, what is this? It's like, is there something, there's no, you know, is there something wrong with this wine or should it be like this? You know, or why is it? So, yeah, definitely it's, there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, obviously, I, the groundwork is done already with, you know, the constant presence of, like, Raj in our markets and, you know, Jasmine Hirsch is out a lot too. You know, we're getting there slowly, but it's very, you know, it's very enjoyable work because I, I actually think it's pretty easy. When you taste the wines, you show a little picture or a map, it's easy. At least when you can, you know, when you can sit down with someone, if you're in a fair or a big tasting you know, trying to explain something like that to people is is difficult. But uh, yeah, it's it's growing. But how much upside potential is there for American wine in Europe? Because, you know, we were speaking about the Aaron Jordan interview earlier. And if you remember in that interview, he says that in the 90s, Phelps sold no wine in Europe. And he had to kind of propose the idea of like, hey, what do you think? <laughs> Maybe we could sell a few cases. And they gave it to him because it was such a low priority. They gave it to him, low man on the totem pole to head up. And that you know, segue to whole European odyssey for him. But I think historically, outside of Mandavi, maybe a couple other producers, there hasn't been a real focus or even expectation that Europe would buy the wines. I'd say it's unlimited in terms of potential for, for California and Europe. I buy some wine from California too. One of the producers that I'm just picking up is Matthiason. So, you know, it's one thing selling 
lean California Chardonnay, which is fresh and vibrant, has a lot, lots of minerality, selling Ribola Giala from Napa. Now that's more tricky, but that's also, I think, part of the greatness of California is the immense diversity. You realize that there is so much diversity in terms of terroir and old vines and different grape varieties. So why shouldn't people in Europe be interested in exploring all of that? Do you have more success in some countries than others? Yes, Sweden is strong, Denmark is strong, England, France is strong. France buy a lot of Domaine de la Côte, which is, you know... Sort of amazing, actually. It's, you know, that's interesting. It's fun, I think, that you can go to a, to a three mission star restaurant in Paris, they have Domaine de la Côte on the list. I mean, that might a little bit be the Raj effect, right? Like, it might be a little harder if there's no Raj involved. You know, he has a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, so, you know, the panache that kind of comes with, with Raj obviously has an effect. But also, I think that when I taste Domaine de la Côte, when I have sommeliers taste it in Paris or wherever, it's so different. I think it has an appeal. And I think they find the wine interesting and good enough to put on the list. Something I would be fascinated to do would be to visit all those different countries and see what the sommelier cultures either were or were not in each. Because I feel like the amount of sommeliers, the youthfulness of sommeliers, the experience of sommeliers, the focus of in terms of the wines of different sommeliers really varies regionally. You know, I think it's funny that Stockholm is considered to be um, a Somali hotspot or somewhere to go for, you know, for, for a great gastronomic experience because I live there and I don't really see it that way. But I got so many friends coming over, they leave and they say like, you know, this is great. Like, you know, it makes me think like, yeah, it, you know, maybe it is actually. Maybe we, we have a pretty, you know, lively scene, friendly, open-minded, and you can, you know, find a lot of, you know, great wines and stuff. What about Portal? I mean, what's the situation for you in Stockholm and working at that restaurant? So when I left the Burgundy Bar, which had also one of, the, I mean, we had the biggest wine list in Stockholm. So, there, you know, it's fun and cool to work with a big wine list like that. And, you know, when I go back and look at it now, it's like, oh, it's so, you know, it's massive. But with a massive list like that, it kind of inhibits your creative freedom a little bit. Because you can't put anything on the list because it'll just be on the list. If you got 200 references of red Burgundy, who's going to buy that red Sancerre, you know? So I wanted to do something quite the opposite at Portal. Create a small list, well-picked, just with a big turnover. So we could just buy stuff and we know it will sell through. We liked it, okay, we'll buy some more, but more kind of change things up. So every time you come there as a guest, there's something new and exciting on the list. So I don't, I don't work with verticals. Uh, we have verticals in-house, but we kind of sell through one vintage and then move on to the next one. That's something that's become more and more popular in New York. I mean, if you think about Terroir Wine Bar or something like that, that's the model that they embraced, which was in the face of exactly what you were describing. It was in the face of restaurants with deep verticals and big cellars being the, the dominant model. And then these places opened up with much more smaller focus lists that changed a lot. And that's now what you see most mostly. Yeah, it's it's... It's, I think, more fun and interesting to work with. Also, it's a great way to educate the staff because you put new things on all the time, you know, that they get excited about, that I'm excited about, and try to tell them, you know, this wine is special because, you know, for this reason. And 
yeah, I mean, it's it's something to keep me interested too in you know coming to work knowing like you know we have all these new wines on the list or I need to buy you know try to find this you know wine or this vintage you know the Burgundy section is getting too young we need to find some more old stuff or you know whatever. So, I mean, I, I think you're probably a guy who likes to challenge himself sometimes to stay interested because you you probably get bored and when you get bored you get angry. I mean, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good that's a good guess. That's a good assessment. I'd say that um, I've always tried to push myself. I've always enjoyed being in situations with people that are much more knowledgeable than I am, who can teach me just by talking. You know, to listen to people and to learn. And if I'm the most knowledgeable person on wine at the restaurant, I need to find a way to make it exciting for myself. Um, yeah, to keep it interesting. I would find it interesting if most sommeliers had their own import company, which isn't something I'm, I've worked with before as a model, because, you know, I guess the tendency would be to put those wines on your list and maybe to buy less from other people or buy from your friends. So it's a little bit, I guess it's, uh, again, it's more like the Canadian model, but it's a, uh, it's an interesting thought how that would actually play out, you know, amongst each other. You know, if you look at the list at Portal or go to a restaurant or wine bar where one of the sommeliers has their own company, maybe it's leaning towards a little bit more towards wine in their portfolio. I always have wines on by the glass that I import, but I try to buy as little as possible from my own wine. Is that true? Yeah. Is that the normal? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's normal, but I don't want to import wine and just keep it all to myself because that kind of defeats the purpose of of spreading knowledge and uh, have people taste and work with them. It's one thing to have you know people tasting them, but you know you want to put something wines on by the glass in restaurants to so people can work with them, hopefully understand and like you know what they what they see in the wines. So. From that time when there was only four people competing in the sommelier competition till now, what's the scene now, like for Stockholm? I think what so what we tried to do and maybe accomplished is to kind of show younger sommeliers or ambitious sommeliers that nothing is impossible. And what you would see now is younger sommeliers engaging much more, I think, in themselves which is important, their own experiences, their own knowledge, which is a big thing of what we do as sommeliers. You need to taste, you need to travel. And I think it's become important for a lot of sommeliers to show that, they, that they're that they good, not necessarily through competing, but through other instances, social media or whatever. And I, th I find that the Swedish sommeliers are getting more and more interested. Ten years from now, what's that going to look like? I mean, what's your projection for where things are going? Well, I I hope that as sommeliers in my generation maybe start to do a little bit other things than just being on the floor, I hope that the next generation would take over what we try to do, educate, uh, not being snobbish uh, or you know full of prestige. But you know, realizing that wine is you know fun and it's open for everyone, everyone can have their own opinion. It's actually better if everyone has their own opinion. If you taste the wine around the table with six sommeliers, everyone says the same thing. It's completely uninteresting. 
And I hope that this is passed on and maybe even evolved and that the younger Somalia community will be a true community of minds that kind of exchanges experiences and thoughts on the products that they work with. Tote Stenaby has found a benefit to engaging with his own experience and sees his peers doing something similar. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Tote Stenaby of Portal, the restaurant in Stockholm in Sweden. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.